How is everybody? Yeah, that was good. That was good. That was the best one all weekend. That was really good. Hey, if it's your first time here, and I'm sure there's a, a couple of you out here, um, this is something kind of interesting. Um, contrary to, to maybe what, what other churches do, uh, we're doing the same thing that we do every single weekend here. This is how our music always sounds. Our videos always look like this. Uh, and I'm going to teach the exact same way that I typically teach. And what's interesting is we've been working through the Gospel of John I, somewhere in the neighborhood of five, six months. We've been working through this Gospel. And it happens to land, chapter 20, that we're going to do today, happens to land on this weekend, which happens to be Resurrection Weekend, which is really, really cool. And so what you're going to kind of see today and hear today in the teaching today is not anything uh, exceptional that we do. It's just kind of our, our normal mode of operation, right? This is what we do. And last weekend, we were in chapter 19 of the Gospel of John, and we happened to talk about the crucifixion. Now, most people are familiar with this, right? Even if you're not a Christian in here, you're familiar with the fact that a guy named Jesus was nailed to a cross. We went into some details in chapter 19. We talked a little bit about that. And our whole focus last week was kind of answering the question why that even had to take place, right? Why would God's only son have to be given and brutally be murdered the way he was? Um, my wife and I were watching The Passion of the Christ a little bit last night. She was already towards the end of it when I got home last night and I watched like maybe the last 40 minutes of it and just a reminder of just how, how awful that was. And so last week we talked about how the reason why that, that Jesus had to go through what he went through and be crucified on the cross is actually found in a document called the book of Isaiah written 700 years before Jesus' birth. It tells us why he had to be crucified. And it says in Isaiah that he was crucified because we had become rebellious because we had gone our own way. We did what we wanted to do. We had sinned. We had offended God. And to pay for that offense, to pay for that rebellion and sin, blood had to be shed. And it was the blood of God that was, uh, that was shed, the blood of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Now, that's not the pinnacle of Christianity. Today is actually what we get to talk about being the pinnacle of our faith. And that's not the death of Jesus. It is the resurrection of Jesus. The fact that he came back to life. And that's what we get to talk about today. So what I want to focus on, I typically do this every single week, we kind of have like a theme that we want to hit by the end of the lesson. The theme we want to hit at the end of this lesson is this. We're going to ask ourselves, do we look for life? Do we look for hope or contentment or vitality or fulfillment, whatever, however you want to phrase it? Do we look for something to fulfill us in things that are dead or dying? That's what we're going to talk about, okay? And we'll go back at the end of the lesson and we'll hit this idea, and of course, that'll make sense when we reach the end. Um, let me tell you a fun story before we, <laughs> before we get started, just because it's cute and I like talking about my kids. So I have two little girls, right? My youngest one, Vi, who's kind of a fireball, right? Anyways, we have two back porches on our house, one that's screened in, this one, and one that is not screened in. And so during the huge storm that happened a couple of weeks ago, you remember the huge like seven minute storm that everyone you know, thought was gonna like, you know, just decimate uh, Murfreesboro. Anyways, it came through, it rained for 40 seconds. And, but it, in, the, in the course of the storm, it did knock out one of the screens on my screened in back porch. So now our screened in back porch has become like a bug sanctuary. So everything comes in one way and I guess they just don't, you know, understand that they can just go right back out the other way. So they just come in and they just, just start to live in our screened in back porch. It's like a science project back there. And so the other day I'm walking out. <laughs> I'm walking out. I got two stories to tell you because it's 11. We got all the time in the world, right? So anyways, so I'm walking out and there was this, uh, I got my two girls with me because we're gonna go to Sonic and get something to drink. And um, so there's this huge butterfly, beautiful butterfly. And the kids are just freaking out. Look at this butterfly. It's so big. It's like the size of a bird, right? This big butterfly. There's also this huge dragonfly, like a, two feet away from it, that's also about the size of a bird. And I'm like, hey guys, like, yeah, butterfly's great. Let's watch out for the dragonfly. Let's go out here. And, and it was the first time my youngest had heard a dragon, like a dragonfly. And she goes, dad, we can't leave the butterfly alone. The dragonfly is going to breathe fire on it. And I was like, well, that's not how it works. <laughs> you know, so I told her on the way to Sonic that she doesn't have to worry about a fire-breathing bug, you know, and so we went to Sonic came back, and uh, the next day, <laughs> the next day, the butterfly was having a hard time flying, and it was like on the floor of our, our screen and porch, 
and Vi walks out, and don't worry, we helped it, it flew away, everything's good. But anyways, um, she walked out and saw the butterfly, and she yelled and, and, and kind of like screamed at my wife, and she goes, it was the dragonfly that did this. <laughs> and she genuinely, <laughs> genuinely thought there was like some epic battle in my screened-in porch between the butterfly and the dragonfly. And... Okay, other story that no other service has heard except for you guys, how exclusive you are. It's not even a, it's not even a good story, but I think it's kind of funny. So a couple of week, uh, weekends ago, my wife was out of town in Memphis uh, visiting her sister because uh, they just had a baby. And so she always gets on to me because <laughs> I leave our back door open so our dog can go in and out of the backyard. Right? I just leave it cracked a little bit. It's not like it's like wide open, you know, but I had it open just enough for the dog to go in and out. She always gets on to me because she says something's going to come in the house, right? Bugs or whatever. So, <laughs> so I got the door open and I'm like cutting vegetables for my lunch. And I look up and a bird flies right into my house and lands on my television. And pardon my language for a second, I just go, oh crap. Because I'm like, my wife is gonna murder me, right? And so I'm sitting here cutting the vegetable and I just kind of stop and stare at the bird, look at it, it hops around on my TV, goes to my couch, and then flies out and I just go, thank you God, <laughs> right? That's it, that's the story. And that was, uh, yeah, isn't that fantastic? If anything wants to make you come to church here, it's my awesome story. So, uh, or the Bible and the Holy Spirit, whatever, you know. So, um, anyways, guys, this is my fifth time teaching this this weekend. I'm going to go home and crash after this. So, it's going to be glorious. I'm going to eat lots of chocolate. My family's waiting for me. We're just going to pig out. It's wonderful. Okay, so let's pray. We're going to dive into John chapter 20. You should have a notes handout in front of you. Uh, if you have a Bible, this is the fourth book of the New Testament. If you have a smartphone, if you have the Bible app, the YouVersion app, click on the bottom right-hand corner, and I think you click on uh, more or, or events, something like that. Our church will pop up, all the notes, all the, all the scripture, very, very handy, okay? So you should have everything in front of you that you need. If you don't have any of those things, I'm going to read it to you, and then I'll break down the passages, okay? So we'll be all right, all right? Let's pray. Let's dive into this. Let's see what happens. Father, Lord, I love you. God, I thank you. I want to thank you so much for this day, Lord. We want to thank you that you died for us, but even more so, we want to thank you that you didn't stay dead, God, that you rose again for us because you loved us and you give us life. Father, I pray for everyone in this room, whether they be a believer or a non-believer, I pray, God, that you touch their heart today and that you spark something in us, God. We pray, Father, that you bless every single church in our community, I pray that today that they were full, that the gospel was taught, and that many people come to a saving knowledge of you, Lord. We pray that your kingdom be advanced in our, our city, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces. God, we love you, and we thank you. Be with us today as we study your word, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, chapter 20. Now, let me, let me kind of tell you where we're at. <coughs> Jesus has just been crucified. And there's two affluential, influential men, uh, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. These two men worked out a deal to where they got to get the body of Jesus off the cross, right? They put it in a proper tomb. They gave Jesus a proper burial. They sealed the tomb. And now we're, here we are on the next day, okay? A couple of days later, and here we are. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb, so she ran to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Jesus following, uh, then, then following him, Simon Peter came also. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not laying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, then entered the tomb, saw and believed. For they still did not understand the scripture that he must raise from the dead. Then the disciples went home again. 
Okay, so the first person to see that the tomb was empty was a woman named Mary Magdalene. And we'll talk about Mary Magdalene in a little bit more depth here in a second. But what made Mary an interesting figure in the New Testament is Mary Magdalene was a woman who was once demon-possessed, and we speculate, we don't know for sure, but many speculate that she was a prostitute. So this is a woman who lived a very interesting life, if you will, before she met Jesus Christ. But Jesus delivered her, and she became an avid follower of Christ. So after the crucifixion, Mary Magdalene and Mary, Jesus' mother, went to the tomb, and they discovered that the sealed stone had been rolled away. Now, sealed is important. The fact that not only was there a large rock in front of the opening to Jesus' tomb, but it had been sealed by the Roman soldiers. There's no moving this thing, right? It is done. No one can go in. No one can come out. So startled by this, that someone had robbed the grave of Jesus, she runs back to the disciples and tells them that his body is missing. He is not in the tomb. Now, when she gets back to the disciples, the disciples have assumed that the movement is done, right? Their savior, their best friend had died. But even though many of them assumed this whole Christian movement was done, Peter and John get up and they start bolting towards where the burial tomb is, okay? Now, two interesting things about that. One is this. All of the disciples had been told for three years that this was going to happen. They should have known better. Jesus had been very upfront with them. I'm going to die. I'll be dead for three days, and I'll raise again. They knew this. So that's an interesting thing. They had forgotten that. The other interesting thing is the first person that Mary told about the missing body is the one that had rejected Jesus three times just a couple of days prior. So Peter is the first one to hear, gets up, and takes off. Now, I think it's funny that John records the fact that he was a faster runner than Peter. <laughs> Why not, right? We got up, we ran, I won, and we got to the tomb. That's essentially what John says. So though Peter may not be as fast as John, it says in the book of Luke, though, that Peter wasted no time. He got up, and this guy ran as hard as he could towards the tomb. Now, what's interesting about that, in our culture, we don't really think about that, right? We run for pleasure in our culture. In Palestinian culture, men did not run. That was looked at as being childish or immature or not carrying yourself well. But here's the thing. Peter and John didn't give a rip what anyone thought of them. They were on their way to find out what had happened to Jesus. So they didn't care that their reputation, that people were mocking them or laughing at them or what in the heck are those guys doing? They didn't care. They took off towards the tomb. So John gets there first, but he doesn't go in. Listen, John might have been younger and faster and more agile, but maybe not as brave as Peter. But we gotta cut him some slack. John gets there, gets to the tomb and stops. And you have to think, if you've seen the Passion of the Christ, it displays this very well. The only disciple that saw Jesus be beaten, murdered was John. So John in his head is probably thinking, if I go in there, I don't want to see Jesus' body again. I don't want to see how scarred and maimed and bloody and awful it was. So he stopped and he didn't go in, right? And so one must remember that he probably didn't want those images going through his head. Now, Peter... If you haven't been here for our teachings on Peter, Peter is the guy that does something and then he thinks about it, right? So Peter shows up, he doesn't think a thing about it, plunges right into the tomb. And now one of the things is he might have been motivated by his shame. He was now known as the guy who had denied Jesus three times. And so maybe motivated by shame, he thought he could fix the situation or do something to kind of get his reputation and redeem himself. So he just jumps right into the tomb looking for the body of Jesus. So Peter goes in, and as he goes into the tomb, he sees something pretty interesting. Not only is Jesus's body not there, but the linens have been laid out and some of them even folded and put back. It's nice to know that Jesus is an A-type, right? That gives some of us hopes folds everything up nicely and puts it back where it needs to go. So what this shows us though, is it shows us that whatever took place, it wasn't chaotic, it wasn't spur of the moment, it was well thought out, it was intentional, it was calculative. Someone even took the time to make sure that the clothes were properly folded. So this wasn't just an accident. And so eventually, after Peter goes in and, and there's nothing in there, 
John mentions that he goes into, and now he's the third person that has witnessed the fact that Jesus' body is not there. And it said he saw and believed. That doesn't mean that he believed Jesus resurrected yet, because it says they hadn't connected the dots yet. They know that Jesus was missing, but they didn't remember that the scripture foretold this. They didn't remember that Jesus had told them that. And the reason why it's important that John mentions that is later on we're gonna see that the scripture doesn't make sense. Jesus' words don't make sense until we have the Holy Spirit. And we're gonna see later when they receive the Holy Spirit, okay? So next part. But Mary stood outside facing the tomb, crying, and as she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting there, one at the head and one of the feet where Jesus' body had been lying. They said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, though she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you've removed him, tell me where you've put him and I'll take him away. Jesus said, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples that I have seen the Lord, and she told them what he had said to her. So as Peter and John split, right, they run back to tell the others, Mary Magdalene stays at the tomb. Why? Because she's probably buckled over in grief. Now, knowing that she was demon-possessed, knowing that she might have been a prostitute, that she had been delivered from much shame and guilt and sin, not just losing Jesus would have been awful, but losing Jesus and having someone tamper with his grave was too much for Mary, right? She is buckled over, she's crying, and as she was crying, maybe she stoops down or gets on her knees, but however it looked, she looked into the tomb and sees that there are two, Luke says, two men in there, two angels in all white. Now keep in mind it's dark out, right? She doesn't know what is in there, but she knows two men are in this tomb. Now here's the thing about angels in Christianity. We do one of two things with angels. We either talk about them way too much and get a little squirrely and weird with angels, right? Or we don't talk about them at all. And there is a place in the middle where we should hang out. The Bible mentions angels because angels are important. And they're used in several different roles. They announce Jesus' birth. They're the ones that proclaim the kingdom of God coming down, heaven coming down. Angels are the ones that administer punishment on evil in the book of Revelation. They're the ones that fight on our behalf. And the only time that angels are mentioned in the Gospel of John is right here. This is the only time we read this in John's Gospel, okay? But angels are important. And so these two angels come out, right? And they look at Mary and they say, why are you crying? Now, the reason why Mary didn't act extraordinarily to the angels is more than likely because her eyes were clouded with tears. She was overwhelmed with grief, right? She wasn't in a right mind frame. If you read about how other people encounter angels in the Bible, like John, actually. John encounters an angel when he writes the book of Revelation, and it says he fell down like a dead man. That's a fancy way of saying he passed out, right? So every time people had an encounter with an angel in the Bible, typically they would be terrified. It was very overwhelming. But probably the reason why Mary didn't respond like that is she probably wasn't even looking at them. She was overwhelmed with grief. And they say, why are you crying? And she says, because they took away my Lord. And as she says that, she starts to either get up or turn around or face a different direction. And she notices that there is in fact a third person also in the grave, okay? Or also around the grave. Now this third person is Jesus. Now, we can understand that she didn't recognize the angels. She'd never seen angels before, but she didn't recognize Jesus. More than likely, right, she's on her knees or she's buckled over, she's crying, and the resurrected Jesus looks at her and says, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? And she's again overwhelmed, 
and she assumes this is just the gardener, right? It's dark outside, she's confused, and she just assumes that this is the guy who comes early in the morning to take care of the garden that is around this tomb. And so she wasn't looking for the resurrected Jesus, she was just looking for a corpse. She was looking for a body, and she assumed that this gardener knew where the body was. And so after Mary says, please, just if you took him, if someone else took him, just let me have the body. I'll take him off your hands, please. And after she says this, Jesus looks at her and he says one word. This is so good. He just says, Mary. And at this point, she knew exactly who was speaking to him. Why? Because it says in John chapter 10 that his sheep know his voice. He had probably said her name a thousand times in all the time that he had known her before the crucifixion. And so when he spoke her name, something clicked, something resonated with her, and she knew that that was her Savior. Now, how do we know the voice of God? I'm talking about you and I, right? Here's how we start to understand and decipher the voice of God. It takes a little bit of work on our effort. It takes us blocking out time in our day to pray. In order to open up communication with God, we have to talk to God. I know that sounds nuts, right? We also need to read the Word of God. God speaks to us through the written Word. So we pray, we, re we read the Word of God, and if it's your first time here, I'm sorry, sometimes I get blunt like this. Sometimes we also need to shut up long enough to hear God speak. We're so busy saying what we want to say and talking about what we want. Sometimes, like David said in the book of Psalms, we need to be still and we just need to know that he's God, right? We need to meditate on him, think on him, and we can hear his voice, right? We can learn to understand that God is speaking to us. So like I said, right, Mary was an interesting first choice to be the first one at the tomb and see that it was empty. She was even more of an interesting choice to be the first one that Jesus revealed himself to, the resurrected Christ. Now, it's a little bit different in our day and age. We typically view women and men equally in our society for the most part. I know there's some people that don't, but for the most part, we do. In the culture that Jesus lived in, back in this time, women were looked at as grossly inferior. Now, Mary wasn't just a woman. Mary was a woman who had done some awful things. She had been possessed by demons. She had been sexually impure. She had been filled with shame and guilt and sin. But Jesus chose to present himself to her. Why? Because that's how Christ does things. Jesus always presents himself first to those who are desperate for the truth and for those who, who acknowledge that they are poor in spirit. What that means is this. When we are humble and acknowledge that we are spiritually bankrupt, that's when Jesus can work with us. That's when he shows up. That's when he says our name, right? That's when he gets our attention, when we understand that we need him. That's why he presented himself to Mary. And so what did she do? She did what all of us would have done. Imagine if your best friend of all time, right? This was more than a best friend. She believed he was God incarnate. Imagine that he resurrected from the grave. What would you do? You'd grab and hold on and not want to let go. And that's what she did. She probably leapt forward and grabbed him and didn't want to let go of him, right? She already lost him once. And he says, don't cling to me, right? I still have more to do. The reason why he said don't cling to me, there's two reasons. One, he said, Mary, you're going to have to go tell everyone else what you've seen, right? The second one is this, and this is something we all need to learn. When we become Christians, we must learn to live without the physical form of Jesus and rely on his spirit until he returns. We're not gonna be able to see and touch Jesus yet. One day we will, but until he comes back, we must be filled with his spirit and we must rely on his spirit because we don't have him in physical form right now, okay? So Mary ran back. You're talking about running fast. Imagine how fast she ran, right? Mary ran back to tell the others what had happened, and they were reluctant to believe, just like we would have been reluctant to believe, because they were human, right? And the disciples, a lot like us, they wanted physical proof. They weren't living by true faith. Even though they had heard the Lord say these things, they wanted to see it. And what we learn from that is this. We must walk by faith. We can't always walk by sight. That's what true faith is. If we've already seen it, that's not faith. We already have seen the evidence. Faith is believing it's there, even though we can't see it with our own eyes. 
So what we have to do to make it is we must acquire a love for the principles of Jesus. We must acquire a love for the teachings of Christ, for the philosophy of Christ, if you will, for the word of God. And when we have that love in us, it will sustain us until we see him in person, until we get to see him in physical form. Okay, you guys still with me? So in the evening of the first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because of their fear of the Jews. Then Jesus came, stood among them, and said, peace to you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side, so the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Okay, so at the beginning of chapter 20, we're pre-dawn, right? I was driving to church this morning at five o'clock in the morning, and I'm like, no one should ever be up at this hour on a Sunday, right? Or any day, really. But anyways, was driving here, the moon's out, it's dark, it's pre-dawn. That's where the story starts, pre-dawn, but it ends in the evening of the same day. And in the evening of the same day, the disciples were huddled together with the doors locked and they were worshiping, right? But they were, they were stricken by fear because they were afraid of what the Jewish people or what the Romans would do to them. They thought, well, Jesus was just crucified. We could be next. So they locked themselves in a room, right? So they could be alone. In the middle of their fear, in the middle of their confusion, Jesus shows up and says, peace, right? That's what he does. In the middle of our tumultuous times, he shows up and he says, peace to you. Now, the mention of the locked doors is important. There's these little bitty things that we can miss if we're not careful. But John mentions that the doors were locked. The reason why that is important is it shows that these men were doing everything they could within their means to protect themselves from the hostile world. And John points out the, the fact that Jesus went through the locked doors, that that could not contain him, because regardless of what we do, what walls we put up, what doors we lock, nothing can stop Christ from getting to our interior if he wants to go there. Nothing can stop him. He pursues us. He brings peace to us if we're willing to rely on his methods and not our methods of safety. If we will rely on what he does and not what we can do, we will receive peace, okay? So Jesus shows up, and they still don't understand that this is him, even though he's in the room. I find it funny, right? He shows up and says, peace to you, and you know the doors are locked, and some dude's there that you don't know who he is. They probably freaked out. He says, peace to you. Calm down, right? They still didn't recognize who it was, so he said, look, look at my hands. Look at my side. And once they realized that it was Jesus, it says they rejoiced. Their fear and their confusion now turns to hope. It turns to clarity. And once again, he says, peace to you. At this point, he's probably saying, calm down, calm down, guys. He has something else he needs to share with them. He needs to talk with them. He still has more he needs to do. So I wish I could have seen what this looked like. The disciples are there. I don't know if he lined them up and if he breathed on them individually. I don't know if maybe he just you know, set them in a circle like the Last Supper and he breathed out and said, receive the Holy Spirit, however it looked. This is the only instance in the New Testament where people receive the Holy Spirit like this. Jesus breathed on them. The reason why he did this is eventually the Holy Spirit was going to be poured out on all people who believe. But Jesus wanted to prepare this small group of people so they could go out and teach the masses of people who are about to receive the Holy Spirit. So has everyone had access to the Spirit yet? No, that's gonna happen in about 40 days from where we're reading. But Jesus wanted to fill them with the Spirit to prepare them for what they had to do. Now, what we learn from that is this. It's not enough simply to believe in Jesus. We must be filled with the Spirit of Jesus or we're incomplete. We're unprepared. So not only does the Holy Spirit bring us comfort, right? The Bible says a peace that passes all understanding. That's what we receive from the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit gives us counsel, which means it gives us wisdom, it gives us knowledge, it gives us the ability to discern what is evil and what is good. The Holy Spirit also opens up our understanding of the Word. It does that as well. That without the Holy Spirit, that book makes no sense. So it opens up our understanding. And then the Holy Spirit prepares us to go out and engage the world around us. That's what Jesus was doing right there, preparing them to go out. He says, I've been sent and now I'm going to send you too. Now there's a big misinterpretation with verse 23. If any of you were raised in Catholicism, my wife was, and I'm not trying to knock on the Catholics, I love Catholic people, but they have misinterpreted verse 23. They believe that the Pope and the papacy and the fathers, the priests of the Catholic Church, have the ability, they think from verse 23, to go out and either forgive people's sins or not forgive people's sins. And that's not what that passage means. This passage, verse 23, means that Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, gives the disciples, gives us the authority to go bring the word of God and to bring the gospel, and that gospel forgives the sins of mankind. If we retain the gospel, people's sins are not forgiven. But if we give the gospel, their sins will be forgiven. That's what that means, okay? Last part, this is the good stuff. But one of the 12, Thomas, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples kept telling him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails on his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. After eight days, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and observe my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be an unbeliever, but a believer. Thomas responded, my Lord and my God. Jesus says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Those who believe without seeing are blessed. Jesus performed many signs in the presence of the disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you, you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. So are Christians gullible? Um, yes, many are, right? But not all Christians. And John wanted to include a follower of Jesus that was not gullible. We have a guy named Thomas, right? Tom, right? Good old Tom. Doubting Thomas was the stereotypical cynic skeptic that needed to see proof. We all have like, like that one friend in our life, right? And so the disciples had told Tom about Jesus appearing, but he wasn't there, so he didn't believe it, right? I didn't see it. I don't buy it. In fact, Thomas was kind of fed up with the whole Jesus thing. He loved Jesus when he was alive. He loved God, right? But he thought that the whole movement was over. He's like, this whole Jesus movement has crumbled. It has fallen apart. He was one of those seen as believing type guys. And so he started to distance himself from the other disciples. He started to separate himself from the other disciples. In fact, it says that a whole week went by and Thomas wasn't with them. What John wanted to show us with, with Thomas, though, was this is that even, even though someone doubts, even though someone needs proof, even though they're skeptical, that if they will pursue the truth, if they will give the truth a shot, that they will see the truth. We see that Thomas, though he was doubting, though he was skeptical, he didn't give up on God. He went back and worshiped with the disciples a week later. So he went to church, if you will, and at this particular worship service, it must have been a heck of a worship service. Like Jesus showed up literally at this worship service. So even though the doors were locked, Jesus shows up again. He says, you know, hey, everybody, peace to you. And then he turns around and looks at Thomas and he says, I think you wanted to see these. Here you go. And he says, here, look at this. He pulls up his shirt and he says, touch my side, right? You wanted to touch my side. You wanted to see my hands. Here you go. And so rather than showing his scarred wrists inside to the whole group, he just targeted Thomas. Thomas sees it touches it, he's convinced and says something huge. He says, my Lord, my God, acknowledges that Jesus is God. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Let's look at this carefully. Jesus didn't scold Thomas. 
He didn't make fun of him. He didn't turn around to the other disciples and be like, can you believe this guy? He doesn't believe, right? He didn't make fun of him. He didn't do any of that. What Jesus did is he provided evidence that he was the Savior. And only after, please listen to this, only after presenting evidence to the non-believer could he then get on to him for not believing. That's the only time. So here's the thing as Christians, guys. We get super offended when people question our faith. Oh, how dare you, right? How dare you, a non-believer that wasn't raised in a Christian home, question what I believe, right? And we get super bent out of shape about this. I came from a non-believing background. My wife came from a non-believing background. And luckily, we were saved in a church where we had a pastor that was a pretty learned, smart man. Here's the thing. We as Christians shouldn't shy away from hard questions. We shouldn't even shy away from people who doubt. That's who we're going to reach out to. I think it was Peter in the New Testament who said, you need to be engaged with people that have questions and doubt, but you need to have an answer for people who ask you about your faith. So we don't need to be afraid of non-believers. We just need to do enough study and research to be able to answer some of their questions. Now, here's the other thing, Christians. I love you, but there's something that we do that's not very smart. Whenever people say, is there a Jesus? We say, yeah, look at the Bible. And they're like, I don't believe in the Bible, right? So that doesn't work for me. We can't exclusively use the Bible to present Jesus to people. I know that sounds crazy for a pastor to say. Here's where we start off, though, or at least where I believe we should start off. We show people the evidence of God by what God has done in our life. When we start to get to know people, right, when we build relationships, when we ask what people's names are, when we gain a rapport for them, when we have a good reputation with the people around us, they're going to ask us about our lives, and then we can tell them, right? I was once a cocaine addict and tried to take my life three times, and on my third suicide attempt, I came into this relationship with God. I haven't struggled with drugs or alcohol in 15 years and all these different things. You can share these things. Our life, that makes a difference. We can also do some study, and we can show them history. Now, here is where the Word of God comes in a little bit. If you go back and study the, the, the book of Daniel, which I've taught to this church before, and you go back and see that the Greek Empire was predicted, and the Roman Empire was predicted, and the division of the Greek Empire and the Persian Empire, and all these things were predicted, we can use history to show that the Bible has some validity. We can even use archaeology. You can get on Discovery Channel and National Geographic and find archaeological discoveries that they have presented on non-Christian places that show that almost all of the cities and areas and different monuments in the Old Testament and New Testament have been discovered. That gives our faith some, some value. We can show from the Word of God principles that work, right? Treat others as you want to be treated. Husbands, love your wife. Women, respect your husbands. Be good with your money. Don't go into debt. Things like this that we can present, and that also adds evidence of our faith. Get this. We can even use science and nature to prove God. Those things are not our enemies. The more and more science we discover, the more and more it just validates the, the, the book of Genesis and the first couple of chapters of it. Even things like the Big Bang Theory. Do you guys know what the Big Bang Theory is? I know you've heard it and everyone thinks it's evil. The Big Bang Theory is a massive explosion and expansion of light. What is the first thing God says in the Bible? Don't be afraid of terms like the Big Bang Theory. Just be knowledgeable about them. I believe in the Big Bang Theory. Me too. Jesus said, God said, let there be light. There it was. There's our universe. The same thing. So we don't need to be afraid of those things. We just need to take the time to educate ourselves and present evidence. And then after we have presented evidence, we can push people towards belief. I'm sorry, that was a soapbox, and now my, you know, I'm like horse now. Anyways, so Thomas saw and he believed, and Jesus says, that's fine, that's great. But he says, really, truly blessed are those that have not seen, and they believe. And this has been our main thesis, our main focus of the Gospel of John for like six months now. If you've been here, you've heard me say it a billion times, that believing is seen. Here's what it is, guys. When we are looking for the truth, if you're a non-believer in here, listen to me for a second. If you are pursuing the truth, if you're pursuing the creator, you may not know what that is yet, right? But if we're pursuing the truth, if we're pursuing the creator, if we're asking questions, if we will just want to believe, I believe God will show up. 
I believe he will give you evidence. I, will, I believe he will open up your spiritual sight. I believe that if you're looking for the truth, you will find the truth. Why? Because Jesus says you will. So what was the purpose of this book of the Bible? John wraps it up. We got one more chapter to go, but he kind of wraps it up in chapter 20. He says this, John took the time to record not all of the miracles. He recorded about a third of the miracles that we know of that Jesus did in front of the disciples. He recorded about 10. But that's not what his focus was. John wasn't focused about the miracles of Jesus as much as he was focused about the identity of Jesus. All of John's readers were Greeks and Romans. These were people that would not know who Jesus was. They didn't have any firsthand knowledge of Jesus. So before he wanted them to know about the miraculous things he did, that he wanted them to know who he was and what Jesus has to offer. So he sums it up really nicely in chapter 20. By believing, you may have life in Jesus' name. So what is life? John would say Jesus' life. And through his resurrection, we find life. Not just life here, life forever, eternal life. So let me switch gears as we end. All week as I was studying, I went through the other Gospels, and I know I couldn't hit all four Gospels today. That would have been cool, but it would have taken a, long, a lot longer to do. All four Gospels are in congruency, which means they don't contradict each other, but they come at the crucifixion and resurrection from different perspectives. Now Luke, who is a doctor, goes into much more detail, because he's a doctor, right? And so one of the things he goes into detail about is this conversation that Mary had when she discovered that the body was missing. One of the angels, according to Luke, says and asks Mary this question, and this has been stuck in my head all week. This is what the angel says. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why are you looking for something that's alive in this graveyard, is what he was saying. The angel said, he's not here. He's been resurrected. Now, it's your first time to this church. I want, you to, I want to let you know I'm, I'm an honest person. I'm a pretty straightforward person, and I love people enough to just shoot right down the gun barrel, right? To be very upfront with things. This time of year, Christianity goes nuts. This is our, year to, our, our time of the year to advertise and to drop eggs out of flying apparatuses and do all this crazy stuff, right? To have all these big ploys to get people in the door. And I get it, right? The hope is, and I believe that every church in our town, their true hope is to, to do whatever we can to get people in so we can present the gospel. But what happens is this. The circus fades away. The shenanigans and the giveaways and all the stuff kind of fades away. And so does our intensity on our focus on Jesus. And so what happens is this. Maybe sometimes we don't present the weight and the enormity of the resurrection of Christ. So we go back into the world and the distractions of the world start coming back, right? Well, man, resurrection weekend was great. The sun was shining. We had our best clothes on. This guy gave us this really uplifting lesson about how much God loves us. But then we go out and life starts hitting us again from all corners. We start getting hung up on Facebook again. We start looking at porn again. We start staying up way too late at night and neglecting our family or working too hard and not coming to church as regularly as we used to or whatever the case may be. And we start looking for short-term fixes because we start getting depressed again or sadness comes on or some kind of tragedy strikes. So we go back to the bottle, right? We start smoking more. We start smoking weed or we start doing drugs or whatever pacifies us and gives us some kind of short-term fix. And here's what we end up doing. Not even in things that are negative, but we start putting our hope, we start looking for vitality and life and sustenance and happiness and joy in things that are going to die or are already dead. Even if it's in things like our marriage and our work and our friendships, the Bible says that all of these things will pass away. And so what humanity does is we start looking for long-term fixes and things that the Bible says are going to be short-term. They're not going to last forever. There is one thing that lasts forever, our relationship with our Savior. And we've missed it. We keep looking for something that's alive in the land of the dead. We keep looking for something to sustain us when all the things that we put our energy and hope into, the Bible says, will not last forever. 
So what is today? What is today? A day to chalk up our biggest attendance or to make sure everyone leaves with like a warm, fuzzy feeling. That's not what it is. Today, talking about the resurrection, the most important thing that has ever happened. Today is not a quick fix. Today is not a, hey, we'll see you until next year type thing. That's not what this is. Today is an invitation. This is God inviting us to have a long-lasting, deep relationship with him. This is God saying, this is not the end. I did all this, it's the beginning. Now we can truly live. Now we can truly experience what this life is all about. And will it be easy? Of course it won't be. If any group of people tell you that following Jesus is the easy path, they're either a cult or they're out for your money. It is not the easy way to go. Nothing worth having is ever cheap or easy. Nothing. Is this the easy road? Of course it's not. Became a Christian in late 2002, right? Again, literally, third time I was trying to take my own life. Has it been easy since I did that? No, but has it been better? Has it been good? Has it been fulfilling? Absolutely. Because Christ is resurrected, we have the opportunity, not just for eternal life, but we have the opportunity to have true contentment now, true life. Do you know what truly living is? Regardless of what I don't have, regardless of my lack of popularity or coolness or sex or drugs or big house or whatever, regardless of these things, I still have joy because I have him. That's what we have. Listen, I don't think I'd be a good pastor if I let us leave this place with everyone just feeling warm and fuzzy, but not knowing that this is a big deal. If you are in this room and you are not a believer, A, I used to be there too, man. My wife was an atheist and I was just an agnostic. I thought that everything was right. If you are in here and you are not a believer and you've somehow found your way in here, maybe a family member just like twisted your arm, right? If you're in here and you're not a believer, here's all I ask of you. I'm not gonna make you sign a card. We're not gonna bug you. We're not gonna show up at your house and like, you know, trick you into a Bible study. We're not gonna do any of that. Here's all I ask of you. Keep looking. Keep digging. Keep asking questions. I'm going to ask you to be crazy enough. You don't have to do it today. You don't have to do it tonight. But whenever you find the time, be vulnerable enough. If you're really looking for the truth, if you're really looking for where we came from, if you're asking the big questions, right, what's the point of all this? Here's what I ask of you if you're a non-believer. Sometime soon, close your eyes and you're going to feel like a nutcase doing it but say, God, if you're really up there, let me know. And I am just crazy enough to believe that if you are genuine with that question, I believe God will do something. I believe he'll do something. He'll send someone or give you a feeling or he'll prompt you to go somewhere. He'll do something. Now, the second group of people, and here's where you're, you're, you're gonna get mad at me and you're not gonna like me. If you know who Jesus is and you haven't been to church in six months, or if you only go during Easter or at Advent services or, or, or if you go a couple of times a year. Listen, the book of Hebrews said that the closer that the time comes when Jesus comes back, this is the Bible, we need this more and more. We need the Christian community. You may not like me, you may not like this church, but you need a church home. Not a couple of times a year, not just when life sucks. You need a church every single week you need a community of believers. You need that. We are the bride of Christ. We need to stick together. We need to lean on each other. The Bible says even more and more as the end of time draws near. We need this, guys. We need this. And if you're in here and you have become apathetic to church, if you've become lazy with church, I want to encourage you. A, you need to ask God to forgive you because the church is important to Christ. It is his wife. It is his bride. The other thing is this. I want to encourage you. Find a place to worship. Find a place to get involved. Find a place to serve and be dedicated. Why? Because you need it. Because your kids need it. Because your marriage needs it. Because your city needs it. Because your community needs it. Because your schools need it. Because your workplace needs it. We need the church. It's God's design. For the rest of us, for all of us, 
do not forget. Am I against Easter eggs and parachuting rabbits? I'm not against any of that. But my fear is this, is that we forget, we forget, we forget that the liberation we find in the resurrection was paid for with a great amount of blood. And we forget that the greatest thing that has ever happened is represented by this day, that God came to earth, lived like you and I, died a violent death and shot up from the grave. And he lives forever. And because he did that, we can too. Right? Would you bow your heads with me, please? Listen, as your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed. Guys, there's communion all the way around this room. If you've never been to our church, we do it every single weekend, every single service. The juice represents the blood of Christ. The bread represents the body. That doesn't just represent that he died on the cross. Communion represents that he rose again, that we have access to God because of what Jesus has done for us. If you need prayer for anything, there will be men and women up here on the front. They'll be willing to pray for you. If you have any prayer requests, anything you need, they'd love to pray with you. And everyone is welcome to help yourself to communion. Guys, are your heads are, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, listen, I hope you know that I don't, come, I don't come down on you because I don't love you. I love you very much, very much. And I want you to have the, the best life you can possibly have now. And I want to hang out with you forever in eternity. We have to take this seriously. We have to take this seriously. Because Jesus takes us seriously. He loves us more than anything. Father, we love you. We praise you. God, for all of my brothers and sisters in this room, God, I pray that you protect them. Lord, I pray that they get to go and spend some quality time with their family and their friends, that they get to eat too much today and that they just get to hang out and relax a little bit, God. But Lord, don't let them forget. Don't let them forget what today is. We love you. We thank you. We praise you, God. And it's in your name that we do everything good, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you guys to death. I hope you have a great, great day.